Good morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The word of the Lord. Many people have a complaint against religion, and it's an understandable complaint. There's a famous saying that puts it like this. It says, religious people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that before? Sure. Uh, In other words, religious people, and especially in our country, that would be referring uh, primarily to Christians, are so focused on escaping this world into heaven that we completely ignore all of the evil, suffering, and injustice of this world. And right now, especially in wake of what happened yesterday in our country, we are hyper aware of the suffering, evil, and injustice of this world. We feel beleaguered by it, burdened by it. And at the heart of this complaint is this idea that, well, you can either focus on a world beyond this world, or you can focus on this world, but but you can't do both. So which one is it going to be? Like I said, this complaint is understandable because almost every religion in the history of the world really is offering you ultimately some escape from this world. And so it's understandable why so many people would be disillusioned with Christianity today because it feels like Christianity is saying, well, you have to either make a choice between heaven or this world. But here's the question, what if that's a false choice? In other words, what if it's not an either-or? What if it's a both-and? What if, out of all the religious and spiritual options that are out there, and there are a ton of options, what if the God who's really there really cares both about this world and all the suffering and injustice in this world and about a transformation that's available to you that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine in this world? We're in a series on Romans 5 through 8, 
which is all about finding new life in Christ. This passage that Joel just read is one of the most famous places in the Bible that tell us about God's goals for our lives and for this whole world. Really what God is offering you is a hope, a living hope, a real hope. What is this hope? Well, let's find out by seeing three things that the Apostle Paul shows us about it in this passage. He shows us the revelation of hope, the practice of hope, and the assurance of hope. Okay? The revelation, the practice, and the assurance of hope. So first, let's take a look at the revelation of hope. You know, one of the main promises of the Bible is that the physical, glorious, embodied resurrection of Jesus Christ is a preview of something that's going to happen to Christians one day. And you see Paul talks about this several places in this passage. For instance, he says in verse 18 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us or to us. Uh, You see it even more clearly in verse 23. Paul says that we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. He is specifically talking about this promise that one day God is going to give human beings the glory of a resurrected, renewed, material body. But that's not all. In verses 19 through 21, Paul says that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, this is a mouthful, but here's what Paul is saying. Creation, that means this world, is waiting for the resurrection of human beings. And and it says, waiting eagerly. That word eager is a word that means standing on tiptoe, craning your neck. Why is it waiting for our resurrection? Because creation, this world, is going to experience the same thing as us. That means that the physical, embodied, glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only a preview of something that's going to happen to us one day, it's a preview of something that's going to happen to the whole world. Physical, glorious, embodied renewal. There is no other religion, worldview, philosophy, scientific theory, or any other approach to life that says anything like this, at least not as far as I'm aware, and I've been looking for many a year now. In fact, it's the opposite. If I could be just a little bit cheeky, what do both doomsday fundamentalists and secular atheists have in common? They both are looking, um, they both say the ultimate destiny of this world is destruction. They disagree about how that destruction happens, whether it's the judgment of God or the second law of thermodynamics, but both of them believe that the ultimate destiny of creation is destruction. But what does the Bible say? If we were to go back to verse 19, um, Paul says that the the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now, if we were to translate this literally, here's what it says. The creation waits in eager expectation for the apocalypse of the children of God. That word apocalypse, how do we usually think about that? Annihilation destruction, right? But this word in the original language, apocalypse doesn't mean destroy, it means reveal. Paul is saying that that God is going to reveal 
a new creation, not destroy this creation. That's what God's vision for this world is. Or we could say it like this, friends, the, the big idea this morning is simply this, that God is not destroying this world and carrying us away to heaven. He's renewing this world by uniting it with heaven. That means that God essentially is, is telling both the fundamentalists and the atheists, hey, I know your vision for the world is annihilation, but I have a radically different vision. My vision for this world is not annihilation, it's restoration. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Think about our complaint against religion. Think about our experience of evil, injustice, and suffering in this world, and our complaint that this world must, must be put right you know, the Bible is not indifferent to that complaint. In fact, the Bible is the loudest voice of that complaint. So, for instance, you look at what Paul says in this passage. In verse 18, he talks about our present sufferings in this world. Or in verse 22, he says that the creation has been groaning. And not only so, but we human beings ourselves groan inwardly. We groan. We suffer in this world, through all the evil and injustice of this world. And notice something else, that not only does the suffering hurt, it's painful, it's unpleasant, but we experience it as wrong. We experience it as unjust. That's the way we experience evil and suffering in this world. We call it wrong and unjust. And, and still, to this day, this is one of the um, primary reasons that so many people doubt the existence of God in our world. So, for instance, I read an op-ed essay a couple of weeks ago by a guy named Scott Hershevitz. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan. He's also a Jewish atheist who goes to synagogue, and he brings his family with him. And so, in the op-ed essay, he was talking about how his son is actually studying for his bar mitzvah right now, but recently his son told him that he doesn't believe in God, and his dad asked him why not, and his son said, well, because if God was real, he wouldn't let all these people die. He's talking about mostly people in Ukraine at this point. The, his son said, God is supposed to care about us. That doesn't seem like something you'd let happen if you cared and could stop it. That is pretty sophisticated for a 13-year-old to be having these kinds of thoughts. But think about it. The existence, the reality of evil and injustice in this world is still, to this day, one of the most powerful arguments against the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God. It's a huge problem. But here's the thing. Getting rid of God does not solve the problem. In many ways, it just makes the problem worse. What do I mean? Many of you um, have heard of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was one of the most famous Christians of the 20th century. You may be aware, but maybe not, that for much of his adult life, uh, C.S. Lewis was actually an atheist. And the main reason that he was an atheist was because of the existence of evil and suffering in this world. But that was also the, the thing that led him to faith in God. Here's how he describes it in one of his books. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A person does not call a line crooked unless they have some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, 
then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Now, I know that's a lot, but here's what he's saying. Let me try and paraphrase this as simply as I possibly can for us. If there is evil, we say there's no God to complain to, but if there's no God, there's no evil to complain about. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. If, ev- if there's evil in this world, then we're tempted to say that there's no God to complain to, but if there's no God, then ultimately there's no evil to complain about. Do you see the problem here? Friends, we complain, and we complain loudly that this world is wrong, that it's unjust, that things are not right, and we complain that this world must be put right. Where does this complaint come from? We groan about this world, but why do we groan? The reason is because this world was originally created for glory, beauty, perfection, and wholeness, but Genesis 3, because human beings said to God, we don't want to live the way you want us to live. We want to live the way we want to live. And because of that, the whole world is falling apart. Second law of thermodynamics, death, decay, evil in this world. Our groaning is, is, is because we remember what this world was created for. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about phantom pain. Phantom pain is when you have an amputated limb, but you still feel pain where that limb used to be. Our groaning in this world is phantom pain over the glory that got amputated. The promise of the Bible is that God is going to restore the glory. He's going to restore this world, and not just restore this world, but make it come alive in a way that goes infinitely beyond anything that we can possibly imagine in this world. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen the revelation of hope, but secondly, Paul gives us some insight into the practice of hope. Here's what I mean. Let me offer us just a couple of ways, practically speaking, that this hope of a world made new makes a difference in our lives today. And the first is this. This means that we can work for the good of this world Because God's ultimate vision for this world is not destroying the world and carrying us away to heaven, but renewing this world by uniting it with heaven, because of that, Christians of all people have the greatest possible motivation and incentive for actually working for the good of this world, for actually doing something about the injustice and oppression and inequity and racism and violence and poverty and, and, and all the environmental threats and all the other ills of this world to actually do something about that stuff. And by the way, if you look at the history of the early church, you see this really clearly. And that doesn't mean that we should ignore the realities of history. In other words, we need to acknowledge the reality that Christians in many times throughout history have been some of the worst perpetrators of evil and injustice in this world. And so it actually makes sense that that people would be cynical about that. So as Christians, we need to pay attention to that and be honest about that and understand why people would be so disillusioned about Christianity. For instance, there was a tweet a couple of years ago that um, it went quasi-viral. At least it showed up in my social feed quite a bit. And here's what the tweet said. Most non-religious people wouldn't have a problem with religion if it was something benign, and privately practiced, instead of something weaponized to oppress people, justify harmful beliefs and rituals, proselytize and convert, and infiltrate government. 
Now, I don't know about you. I have a lot of friends who really resonated with this. And I think as a Christian, we, that Christians should really pay attention to these kinds of criticisms of the church and of religion in this world. But that said, can we notice a couple of things about this? The first is this. Notice that this tweet is very concerned that, that religion represents a threat to some of our most cherished moral ideals in our culture, moral ideals like human rights and individual dignity and personal freedom. But here's the thing. Those moral ideals are only in our world in the first place because of Christianity. And if that's a shocking statement to you, if you're new here, um, if, if those of you who come here frequently know I'm constantly um, giving you illustrations of literally dozens of modern historians and philosophers who are constantly pointing this out. And not because they're Christians. Many of them are not even Christians. They're, they're not promoting a Christian agenda. They're just being honest about history. Let me give you one I've never mentioned before. Larry Seedentop is a very highly respected political philosopher. In 2014, he wrote a book. It's hard to see on the screen, but the name of the book is Inventing the Individual, the Origins of Western Liberalism. Now, in this book, his main thesis is that all of the stuff we take for granted in our modern world, things like human rights, individual dignity, personal freedom, and personal choice, all of that stuff it has its origins in the church, in Christianity, that, that those moral ideals wouldn't even be in our modern world if it wasn't for Christianity and its impact in this world. That's, that's the main thesis of his whole book. So here's the thing. Should Christians... Um, should we listen to, to criticisms against the church? Should we, um, should we criticize the church when it oppresses and harms people? Absolutely. But we should also keep in mind that the only way we can critique the church is by using Christian moral categories. Here's the thing. We should critique the church, but the only way we can do that is by using Christian moral categories. Friends, that these moral ideals that we have are only in our culture in the first place because of Christianity. But second, the other thing about this tweet is, is this person says that, that religion would be better if it was benign and, quote, privately practiced. I don't know, you don't have to agree with me on this, but I'm personally very grateful that the early church did not keep its faith private. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the very first Christians started the first hospitals, the first orphanages, the first welfare systems, mass organized systems of caring for the poor. In the ancient world, there was a series of plagues that devastated uh, the ancient world. As many as 5,000 people were dying every day, which is huge um, for the population of the ancient world. And when everybody else was um, abandoning the city, the Christians were the ones who stayed in the city and cared for the sick, oftentimes at the cost of their own lives. Friends, we should be very, very grateful that the first Christians and that Christians throughout history have not kept their faith private. Even going into our modern age, we should be very grateful that Christians like Martin Luther King did not keep his faith private, but instead um, led the whole civil rights movement, not in spite of his Christian faith, but because of his Christian faith. That means that we Christians, of all the people in the world, have more incentive than anybody else to actually work for the good of this world, to actually devote ourselves to things like working against injustice, uh, material provision, and um, caring for the environment, and things like that. But secondly, not only does, um, does the hope of the resurrection mean that we can work for the good of this world, it means that we can face the hardness of life. 
If you go back to the very beginning of this passage, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That word consider is an accounting word. um, It's a word that you might use if you were putting things in the scales and weighing them one against each other. He's saying that when I think about the suffering of this world, this, the, the glory that, that I put it in the scales with, the glory weighs so much. In fact, that's what the word glory means, weight, heaviness. The glory weighs so much that when you put the glory in the scales, the suffering just flies up and out of the scales. And understand something, Paul, the Apostle Paul, that guy knew what suffering was, okay? Don't be naive about what he went through in life. That guy was jailed, beaten, flogged, stoned, shipwrecked, starved, naked, betrayed, maligned. He was even attacked by wild beasts. The guy knew what it meant to suffer, and yet he was able to say that the hope of the resurrection was so powerful in his life that when he, he put the suffering in the scales against the glory, the suffering didn't weigh anything in comparison with it. Friends, the more you have the hope of the resurrection in your life, that doesn't get rid of your sufferings. It doesn't erase your sufferings in this world. It does transform your experience of suffering in this world, and it does so in two directions. Let me explain what I mean. Notice in this passage, Paul says that we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We wait eagerly, but then just after that, he says that if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice he says that our waiting, our hoping in this world is both eager and patient. Now, that is a very unique combination, and the combination of those two things actually gives us a very unique way of waiting and hoping in this world. Here's what I mean. First, if our hoping and waiting in this world is all patience but no eagerness, that means that we could have a tendency to drift into complacency, apathy, in despair because we just say, well, nothing's ever going to change in this world. There's no use trying. There's no use hoping. I'm just going to give up on everything. That means we could be tempted to give up on working to make this world a better place. We could even um, give up on hoping for anything and maybe end up turning to addictions to numb and medicate ourselves because it's all patience but no eagerness. And so we're just drifting into complacency and apathy. But if our hoping and waiting in this world is all eagerness, but no patience, that means we could be tempted to say, things aren't changing fast enough. We human beings have the power. We human beings have all of the control, and we need to get out there and make this world the place it's supposed to be right now. Viva la revolution, and blood flows red in the streets as a result. Friends, when our hoping and our waiting in this world is both eagerness and patience, that means that on the one hand, we are never surprised by evil in this world, but on the other hand, we never give up on this world. We never give up. We never give up working and fighting for the good of this world, striving for the good of this world. There's an eagerness about our insistence that this world must be put right, and we don't just give up and and throw up our hands and say, well, God's going to do it someday when Jesus returns. We're eager, but also on the other hand, we're patient. That means that we can face the hardness of life with eagerness and patience. It doesn't get rid of our suffering. It does transform our experience of suffering in this world. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the revelation of hope. God is not destroying this world by carrying us away to heaven. He's 
renewing this world by uniting it with heaven. We've seen the practice of hope. This means that we can work for the good of this world and we can face the hardness of life. But lastly, we need to take a look at the assurance of hope. Because here's the challenge. How do we know this hope is real? Well, here's how. Notice in verse 23, Paul says that we ourselves, he's talking to Christians, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, first fruits is a farming word. In, in a harvest, the first fruits is the first crop, the first um, produce that comes up out of the ground during a harvest. And that means two things. First, it's, the first fruits is a preview of what the rest of the crop is going to look like. But secondly, it's a promise of more to come. Because right now, the first fruits is just maybe a handful. Is it the whole harvest? No. But it's real. I mean, like you can take a bite out of it. In other words, first fruits is a preview of a future reality that makes a difference in your present reality. Did you know that the Bible calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection? That means that the physical, embodied, glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ is both a preview and a promise of the physical, glorious, embodied resurrection and renewal, not just of human beings, but of the whole creation, of the whole world. That means that the first fruits of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit takes the, the, the resurrection of Jesus and makes that a living reality in your hearts and makes a difference in your lives right now. That means that the resurrection of Jesus is a preview of a future reality that makes a difference in your present reality. It doesn't take away your experience of suffering. It does transform your experience of the suffering and the waiting and the groaning of this world. I often like to think about it like this. Um, have you ever gone to an out-of-town wedding? You travel all day, and then you show up to the wedding, and you're tired, and especially you're hungry. But then you got to sit through the ceremony, and then you go to the reception. But even when you get to the reception, you can't eat yet because the bride and the groom are taking photos somewhere. Nobody gets to eat until they show up to the wedding reception. You're tired. You're hungry. You're groaning while you're at that reception. But then what happens? Some little people come out with bow ties, and they got trays in their hands. And what do they do? They hand you a little cracker, a little piece of cheese on it, Maybe they hand you a little glass of wine or soda pop, something like that. And what happens when you just pop that in your mouth? Man, when you're that hungry, you never thought anything tasted so good. But what is a cracker? You know, it's, it's not the feast to come, and it's not supposed to be. But it does make a difference in your present reality at that moment, right? It's a first fruits. It's a preview of a future reality that makes a difference in your present reality. It, not only does it take the edge off your hunger right now, but it's also a promise and a preview of the feast that you're about to enjoy. Dear ones, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes the physical, glorious, embodied resurrection of Jesus Christ and makes that a living reality of first fruits in your heart. It's a preview of a future reality that makes a difference in your present reality. I mean, why do you think the first Christians were able to work so strenuously and vigorously for the good of this world? It's because of the hope of the resurrection. 
Why do you think that they were able to suffer and even give their lives for the sake of others? It's because of the hope of the resurrection. Why was Martin Luther King able to suffer and give his life for the hope of the civil rights movement? It was because of the hope of the resurrection in this world. Dear ones, if you're exploring faith or spirituality this morning, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a question. Is escaping this world your greatest hope? Because if it is, there are lots of options available to you, whether it's Vedic traditions or Buddhism or New Age spirituality or doomsday fundamentalism or even secular atheism. You know, Stephen Hawking was a very famous physicist. A few years before he died, he gave an interview in which he said something I've always found fascinating. He said, I believe that the long-term future of the human race must be space and that it represents an important life insurance for our future survival as it um, could prevent the disappearance of humanity by colonizing other planets. Now, what's he saying? The future of this world is destruction, and the only hope for humanity is escaping this world. If your ultimate hope is escaping this world, friends, there are all kinds of options available to you. If you have enough money, Elon Musk has a spaceship waiting for you. (laughs) But if there's something inside of you that longs for the renewal of this world and also paradoxically longs for a kind of transcendent transformation that goes beyond anything you've ever imagined or experienced in this world. If both of those things are true in your heart, then that is exactly what the gospel is offering you. It means that that there is a hope that is available to you both for this world and something that goes beyond this world. And the way that hope becomes real to you is not by ignoring reality, but by paying closer attention to reality. Here's what I mean. Think about the way we talk about hope in our world. What does hope mean? When we talk about hope, normally we're talking about a kind of wishful thinking. Hope means ignoring the hard realities of life and pretending that something better could possibly be true, even though you've really got to hope against hope. That's the phrase we use. It means wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about confidence and assurance in God's promise that He is really going to renew this world. And the reason we can have that hope is because we're already tasting the first fruits of it. That means paying attention to that reality. You know, in that op-ed essay I mentioned a little bit earlier by Scott Hershevitz, he says that, hey, he doesn't believe in God, but he still goes to synagogue. Why? When he goes, he even participates in the songs and the prayers and the stories that are uh, performed there. Why does he do that? Even though he doesn't believe in God, he says, well, because I go there and I pretend that all of this stuff is true. Why does he do that? Here's what he says. Because pretending makes the world a better place. Think about the delight kids taking Santa Claus, even those who know deep down that he's not real. They're pretending. He says, pretending makes the world more magical and meaningful. Now think about what he's saying. If there is no God, this world is empty. There there is no magic and meaning in this world. It's not real in the same way that Santa Claus is not real. But ignoring that reality and pretending... Um, makes this world just a little bit more meaningful and magical than it really is. 
Now listen, if there is no God, then I think that's about as good a response as any. Earthly hope means ignoring the hard realities of life and pretending that something more beautiful might be true. But biblical hope, gospel hope, means paying closer attention to reality because something infinitely more beautiful really is true. What is that reality? What is that something infinitely more beautiful? Dear ones, when Jesus went to the cross, he did not die a pretend death on a pretend cross. Jesus died a real death on a real cross with real blood, real wood, and real nails. When Jesus was on the cross, his groaning was not pretend. Jesus really groaned. He groaned the ultimate groaning because he was groaning under the weight of all the evil, suffering, and injustice of this world. That happened. It's real. It's not pretend. Pay attention to that reality. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't with a pretend body from a pretend tomb. Jesus rose with a real body from a really empty tomb. And the people who saw him, their lives were really changed by that. And the world we live in is really different as a result of all of that. These are are historical realities. So if you're exploring faith or spirituality, I would encourage you, pay attention to that reality. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you, pay attention to that reality. The more we pay attention to that reality, the more we let the Holy Spirit make that real to our hearts, the more that transforms our experience of suffering in this world, the more we can work for the good of this world and face the hardness of life. Dear ones, the story is true, the beauty is real, and God's promise is good. The more we pay attention to that reality, the more we pay attention to this story, this beauty, and this promise, the more we will be enabled to work for the good of this world and to face the hardness of this life, all the groaning and suffering in this world, because the the first fruits of all of that is already real in our experience in this world. God is not destroying this world and carrying us away to some disembodied heaven. He's renewing this world by uniting it with heaven. And the more that reality becomes real in your hearts, the more it makes you a first fruits to the world around you. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning for your glorious promise. It's not just wishful thinking. It doesn't mean ignoring the hard realities of this life. Your promise, Father, means acknowledging all the groaning in this world and celebrating that you have already given us a down payment, a deposit, the first fruits of your great promise that one day, not only we as human beings, but this whole world is going to experience a glorious physical embodied renewal. Father, we praise you for the down payment, the first fruits of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We pray that you would help us to pay ever closer attention to the historical reality, Lord Jesus, of your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead, that the more your Holy Spirit makes that real to our hearts, the more we would be able to work for the good of this world, face the hardness of this life, and become a first fruits to the world around us. Abba, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.